that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Spending a little bit of time today with the notorious P.O.B., Patrick O'Boyle, and Ms. Rosella Rago. Is there really a little bit of time? No, I've spent a lot of time with you in the past couple of days, as usual. But what constitutes a little bit of time? I don't think I have any sense of that anymore. That's not a provocative question. Like, uh, If we were a normal podcast, it would be like an hour recording, probably, would be a little bit of time. I think that would be standard. That's fair. It'll never beat Lou Mendela. <laughs> no, Lou Mendela was a five and a half hour recording session for, I think it ended up as an hour episode. I think we got it down. Oh, wow. There's a lot of good stuff on the cutting room floor for that one. That was a good episode. True. We also have someone special back with us today who is uh, jumping in for hosting duties, as she does sometimes. She is in recovery. Uh, for those of you who have been concerned for our associate producer, Ms. Stephanie Longo, she's in her beloved Scranton, PA recovering from uh, a little minor procedure. Uh, I like that word more than surgery. But, Steph, how are you feeling? It's good to see your face. It's just great to see everybody again. I missed you all. It's not normal for me to not see you all. And how long was it? I think you and I haven't really talked since before Christmas. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's not normal for me. I really missed you guys, so I wish I could hug you all. But I'm here. I am Back to normal. Thank you to everybody for your sweet messages and well wishes. I appreciated every one of them. I had my ankle replaced for those of you who don't know what went oh, on. That sounds horrible. That does sound horrible. Oh. I, wait a minute, but can we clarify? You're like a, you're like a bionic lady. Yeah. You had it repaired, oh, like right? No, I had it replaced. What do you mean? They sawed your bone off? Oh, stop. 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 No, I no, 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 no. No, I don't like blood and guts. Stop it. You right. want to discuss just... surgery? Okay. That's fine. I'll yeah, go, calm I'll go down. Go. Let's just say she's got a new ankle. I don't like blood surgery. I don't like any of that stuff. I don't need to know. That's why they knock you out. What about when, when they're going to need to do it to you? What about when you're going to need to Why you got to put the horns on me like that? <laughs> oh, my God. Let's talk about this. God from, see, now oh we got to see. I got to get my mask <laughs> I do not like. You know, I fainted once when I was 16. Really? I'm not shocked. I was at an event, and at the time, they threw um, breast um, uh, augmentation surgery. There were drug runners in South America putting cocaine in this is a true story in the um what do you call those things the, the things for the the implants implants and somebody had to talk about it like they were doing the surgery and i'm like uh, i can't him please stop <laughs> and i and i fainted and they called an ambulance oh no i do not like that i don't want to hear about it no no i mean there's surgeons out there that's why yeah. god made you a surgeon not me that's it i'm done I was glad I was knocked out for the four hours. So that was at least. Not that long. Nice it was four hours. That was it was four hours. The hacksaw and everything else. <laughs> Why does this have to do with being Italian? No, it doesn't. Is, is that it's not do the pie? She was sick. Thank God. She's not sick anymore. Thank God. <laughs> I'm you back at her. work. You yeah. have to go to Lords or anything. They did it all in Pennsylvania. <laughs> she did not have to leave. The real moral of the story is she never had to leave Pennsylvania. That's right. No, I had to go to Allentown. That's though. all. That's the real. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I know that's like that. Is that is that technically northeastern Pennsylvania? No, that's the Lehigh Valley. Oh, I pardon, pardon, moi. Oh no, <laughs> it couldn't be done in the le- northeastern Pennsylvania. I know, right? 
me leaving Northeast PA. That's a horrible thing. I'm going to, I know this is going to be a very corny question, but it's the stuff that enters my mind. Did you play the Billy Joel song as you entered Allentown? <laughs> <laughs> like, I just do that. John knows that. Like, yes, I like to does. have music, yeah. a, a talkedness to the area. He's got a soundtrack for travel. Yeah, that's true. Well, I hope 30,000 pounds of bananas is for Scranton. I mean, you do play that when you come to visit me, right? Why don't you have a 30,000 banana festival? I have no idea what you guys are talking about. What is 30,000 bananas? You didn't know this? Oh, oh you're going to be done now, John. The Harry Chapin song. I, didn't, I never heard it. You didn't know this? It's the national anthem of Scranton. Wait, no, I remember putting it out to you when you came because we drove on Music Street where it all happened. Shame on you, John. Shame on you. You did not know that 30,000 bananas <laughs> is the national anthem of Scranton. They all stand up and salute when that song plays. <laughs> To be fair, Stephanie pointed out 8 million things to us when we were in Scranton. It's true. Because yeah. Stephanie is a natural-born educator and cannot help but you know share the passion about everything she loves in northeastern Pennsylvania. So to be fair, Stephanie, you met you probably did surely point it out yes. amongst the other 7 billion sites of interest like, you know, the first rock that fell off a cliff in Scranton and all those things that you showed us. I'm sure some of them did escape me yes. in the uh, in the 2 days that we worked there. But the natural proclivity to teach and educate and share what you're passionate about is absolutely why we're here today because we have a return guest who's more than a guest really on the show. She's a dear friend of ours. She's been an incredible support to what we're doing and uh, a tireless Italian-American champion. You all remember her from an episode that we recorded on Arthur Avenue long, long ago now at this point. And uh, if you follow our YouTube page, you have seen her on our Arthur Avenue Christmas episode of Greetings from Italian America. So please welcome back from Feast Travel and the Arthur Avenue Food Tours, our friend and yours, Danielle Otieri. So, Danielle, welcome back. Hey, it's so great to be speaking to you uh, instead of, you know, when I'm just walking around the park listening to you guys (laughs) (laughs) and, like, responding back and then texting Pat because I have an answer to something that he may have recorded, you know, two months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. You can get Pat's cell phone. It is available to people. Now, Danielle's had it long before the show existed. No, but... I talk to everybody. Yeah. They don't want to talk to me sometimes. I'll talk to anybody. Talk to them. You'd show up at their house and do their, like, genealogy. Yes. <laughs> but that's the stuff I love. That but I feel true. like I had the OT Italian podcast with Pat because we would just have these long phone calls where he would just say all of these things. And then John was smart enough to say, wait a minute, let's give him a microphone. That's true. That <laughs> was is that true. really smart? I don't know. <laughs> Time will tell. Pat, it was too selfish to keep you to ourselves. We had to share you with the world. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? See, this is why you can't, you shouldn't have me in front of a microphone. People do not realize that Danielle is a brilliant art historian with the concentration in the medieval. Am I correct? Uh, the Renaissance in Naples is technically my area of specialty, but yeah, I sort of drifted into the medieval world from there. Because I know you're unicorn, the unicorn tapestry. Am I correct? Yes. Let me ask Danielle a question. Danielle, you point out, you ended up in expertise in Renaissance Naples. The reason we're here to talk today is you are actually now working through a platform called Context Learning with a new series of seminars that you've created to teach people some really interesting history that is both Italian and Italian-American and in many of the cases uh, you know, related to our community and obviously some other stuff that is, is not it's a, in the other areas of your expertise. But give everybody just sort of an overview. When we talk about like Renaissance Naples, the medieval period, just what are the years we're talking about here? And, and kind of what does that mean in the context of Southern Italy? Sort of what's the snapshot of, of that period? 
So it really depends on which textbook you're reading, uh, which scholar is talking, and, and all of these categories really are artificial in a way because they all depend on a lot of Victorian categorizations, and it's a way to, you know, create departments in universities or categories in museums. So the lines between them are not firm and it sort of depends on who's interpreting the material. And then Southern Italy has always traditionally been sort of excluded from most things. Um, medieval art, when it first became a, a discipline of study in universities, really focused on France, on England and Germany to some extent and totally excluded Southern Italy. Um, Southern Italy is almost more in the, in the realm of like studying the Mediterranean, including North Africa um, and maybe Spain sometimes as well. Uh, the Renaissance, as we know it, really kind of comes together as an idea that forms around Florence. And the Renaissance is something I think that has been marketed to Italian Americans, especially when Italian Americans started traveling to Italy for leisure. So there was those pictures of like, Michelangelo's David and the Colosseum and you know, sort of like these like classic images. And I remember people saying like, oh, we are the people of, uh, we are the descendants of the Medici. Yeah, Italian Americans are not so much the descendants of the Medici, but <laughs> no. you know, we've, um, unless you're Edward Stacey, then maybe. But <laughs> this is all to say that there really aren't very clear firm lines around all of them. But very generally speaking, the Middle Ages is anywhere from sort of the 400s, that early period, which was, is kind of called sometimes the dark ages, till about the 13 or the 1400s. And then the 1500s till about the counter-reformation, we call the Renaissance. And then the, the, the Reformation, the counter-reformation, then we go into Baroque from there. Which is really interesting because if you look at like the 400s, right, you're talking about the fall of the Western Roman Empire, right? The post-Constantine split of the empire, so the idea of Rome sort of migrates east to Byzantium, and those people feel they have a continuity. But if you look at southern Italy in particular, in those dark ages when, which is a, a totally inaccurate term, right? In the Middle Ages, uh, when people think of medieval and they think of the sort of castles and chivalry and uh, very much like you say, the French and British and German model, the south of Italy is actually going through its own, hate to confuse and muddle the words, but it's its own renaissance during those periods in many points where the Byzantine influence is, is still there, right? So it, it does it's not in a dark ages per se. And then in the uh 1100s, 1100s, you have the Norman period, which is this amazing creative conglomeration. We've done whole episodes on with uh, the aforementioned Lou Mendel that we talked for five hours on it. And then of course the Renaissance happening in northern Italy is not the same in that period as as what's going on artistically in the South. So yeah, we're kind of outside of the normal constructs of those time frames. What's happening in the south of Italy is not what people expect in those periods. Is that fair to say? It is, but it's also sort of a result, a consequence of how academia works, too. So southern Italy has these amazing medieval castles, what I call Shrek castles, <laughs> like complete fairy tale um, looking structures. The most famous one being what's called either Maschio Angioino for the Angevins and then taken over by the Aragonese and called Castel Nuovo. So if you've taken the like a ferry out to Capri, you've seen that castle. So it does have an actually a very, very rich medieval period and an equal, equally rich Renaissance period. But when the Germans were retreating from the allies that were coming into Naples during World War II, 
they dropped bombs on the main archives of Naples, which at that time was the most important repository of medieval documents in Europe. And they destroyed it completely. So there's just tons and tons of primary source material that was lost. And the other thing is like for a graduate student who's studying art history or history, literature even, Florence has typically just been a great place to live, right? Like yeah. it's easy to live in the middle of the historic center of the city and have a lovely life with a lot, lot of other expats and drink coffee and have a wonderful life. Um, living in Naples in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s was not usually what scholars wanted to do unless they were already Southern Italian. So this means they're writing in Italian and they're writing for a much smaller audience. So a lot of it really just has to do with where graduate students want to live and work and where those advice, you know, and then those graduate students grow up to become professors. And so it's really only till recently, and it was great to hear Ron Musto on the show a few months back talking about all the exciting scholarship that's being done. That was just getting started when I was a graduate student in 2003, 2004. And it's really blossomed and so much has come to light and, and a lot more is available in English. A lot of that is thanks to Ron Musto. But previously, it's really, it really was just a lack of attention rather than a lack of material. Yeah, it's funny you say that because Pat and I had an event yesterday for the Constantinian Order, and we had a, a mass and a lunch, and uh, one of the Knights of the Order came in for the f- first time in the eight, ten years that I've been involved that I got to meet this gentleman, and he came in from Mississippi. And we don't have many knights or dames in Mississippi, so this kind of stuck out. And he had been knighted, he told me, while living in Italy in the 90s. So I asked him how, and he said he was uh, in the diplomatic service at the American consulate in Naples. And when he first got there, even though he's not Italian-American, he got very interested in this movement for sort of uh, addressing and reawakening of Southern identity and history that was starting to bubble up in the 90s. And he's been active in it ever since. And he was telling me what it was like to go out into these uh, seminars and, and conversations and events in the 90s where some of the really basic facts, even people living in Naples or other cities that he was in the South, had no idea about any of this history. And he said, you know, it's night and day compared to the mid-90s to today. He said it's been amazing to see all this explosion of not just information and scholarship, but just general interest in people. So it does feel oftentimes, and we talk about this on the show a lot, you know, like, what social media has done to expose the South and it's its own kind of renaissance. So you are now joining up with Context Learning and putting these seminars together. First and foremost, can you tell us what these seminars are, what your subject matter is, and uh, then kind of what the reaction's been to the, these offerings? Because it, it, it is a topic that is um, much appreciated, I feel like, in these days, but also kind of new and exciting. So Context is a travel company that's based all over the world. And I used to give museum tours for them in New York on occasion of the Met and the Cloisters. And then when COVID happened, they were very quickly trying to figure out what to do to keep the lights on as everybody was. And they um, asked those of us who had been lecturing with them for years, I think I'd been with them for like 10 years at that point, if we could come up with some online content. And me and their network of people from around the world did so. And I mean, I just, we were all making stuff up. <laughs> we just thought of things that were interesting. But in particular, they asked me if I could develop some Italian topics because that was the greatest area of interest that they had. And there weren't a lot of people based in the U.S. who could deliver these talks on, uh, you know, like 
Eastern Standard Time, you know, at a time that was comfortable for most American clients because that's where their biggest base is. So uh, I started putting them together and I've done mostly Southern Italian topics. I've got two New York based topics just because of my expertise here, but uh, it's been really, really fun to connect with people over topics that aren't even that obscure if you know even just a little bit about Southern Italian history, but are just mind blowing and just completely new things for people who are very well traveled because most of the people that attend these talks are pretty well educated and very well traveled themselves. And the talk that I developed about Elena Ferrante's Naples has been the most popular because Elena Ferrante, the author of the My Brilliant Friend series is something that's been in the popular culture. So that's been a place for people to access Naples in particular. Um, but I've done a lot of content on Pompeii. I've been, um, just did a talk about Baia, which is this incredible, completely neglected archeological site just outside of Naples that's massive. Um, and I have a talk about Matera coming up that has a lot of signups and it seems as though there's a lot of interest there as well. So I'm, I'm doing my part to put Southern Italy on the map. <laughs> bravo, bravo, Daniel, bravo. That's really exciting. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I have a question. Yeah. I know this is probably going to be a hard question to answer. How much research was done on those archives before the bombing like do we have an idea of what we lost or it was just you know cavernous amounts of documents that had never been reviewed or looked at yeah it and and that is the case for most archives cavernous piles of things you have no idea what's there and that's the case for most libraries people don't realize this like even something like the new york public library which is this very beautiful organized building right most of the stuff that's there, probably 80, 90% of the stuff that's in any archives, um, is just waiting for some patient graduate student to go through <laughs> and search for it. And, you know, you've got to search through like 50 boxes full of like leases and mortgages and tax documents to find, you know, the rent payment that Leonardo paid while he was working on a, you know, a famous painting. I mean, there are so many treasures in every archive around the world, but you're waiting for people who um, are working on or studying that and looking for it to, to go through all that stuff. And it takes a lot because A, these people aren't getting paid anything. You have to speak multiple languages. You have to be very patient. You have to be very organized. So no, I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows um, how much of, what was in Naples was actually organized. But Naples had a, a very efficient government during many periods. The one fortunate survival is that many of the documents from the Aragonese period are also in Spain. Um, so that's actually where I stopped. I was on, I was working toward a PhD. And then I realized that in order to really pursue the topic that I was working on, which was Alfonso I of Naples, uh, I would have to learn to speak Catalan. And I'm like, all right, I have enough useless skills. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to add learning Catalan onto the fire. So <laughs> I stopped there. But 
that is a resource um, for people who do study Southern Italy. It's really crazy to think about all the information that's out there in these archives or monasteries and libraries and private collections. I mean, I remember one of my favorite books is The Island at the Center of the World, the history of Dutch New York or New Amsterdam. And uh, the author, Russell Shorto, basically begins the whole process of this book, which was unprecedented at the time. It's such an underrepresented uh, history of Dutch New York by saying, you know, in the state capitol building up in Albany, there was this rotting trove of Dutch documents written in handwriting very specific to Dutch New York and the era in a version of the Dutch language that is completely almost lost today. And there's like one guy who could actually read and translate and transcribe these things. And he, that was his whole life's work. And, you know, he was just going through these rotting documents and it was a wealth of information. And if there's not that one person to do it, we don't know how much of our, uh, our history is out there just waiting to be found by the right person, I guess is the point, you know? Yeah. And I'll give you one really interesting example of like how this boring patient work is the stuff that completely changes our view of history. There is a villa that's um, outside of Pompeii proper in a town called Torre Annunziata. It's this giant villa. And it turns out that there was a second warehouse directly next to it, which had acted as sort of like a shipping port for wine leading up to the eruption of Vesuvius in 79. And they actually discovered it in 1972 when they were building a junior high school. (laughs) And they started excavating and they found this entire villa. So within this villa, they found two things which completely changed our understanding of history. One was all of these amphorae that were filled with wine. It was new wine. And then they also found a lockbox with coins in it. And all of these coins were basically put into storage in the archaeological museum in Naples. So what's significant about this is that forever and ever, people have said that Pompeii was destroyed on August 24th. This discovery of all of this wine shows it would be impossible for this to be August 24th because the harvest of wine happens September or October. But there was also a coin in that lockbox with a date on it that proves that Vesuvius, we can now assume definitely didn't erupt on August 24th, but probably happened in October sometime. So you have everybody repeating this date, accepting it as fact. And then it was like one graduate student who was like (laughs) studying coins in Naples who picks up this coin one day and all of history has changed. Wow, at least they had a good fatia season. (laughs) (laughs) They also found a lot of pomegranates, dried pomegranates in that villa as well, which also pomegranates to the Mediterranean are what like pumpkins are to North America. They are a sign of fall. Um, And they were probably using the pomegranates to dye fishnets. But that abundance of them means that August is would have been impossible for that eruption to happen. It's just crazy to think that, you know, we, we think of history as like, we, we believe it because it was told to us, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a recollection of our own past. Not like science where you can lose the conversation immediately. You know, science, mathematics, it's just way over your head. History can go over your head, but you're on the game board of your own life experience, right? Like you can conceptualize history. So it it feels like, of course, we trust this history because it was told to us. But, you know, it's much easier to assume that the history is complete and makes sense. And it's amazing how much we find out through these kind of complete accidents that history is not what we thought it was. I was just reading a couple of days ago about uh, an ancient Roman site. I guess it was discovered in Spain where they were for the first time able to actually get some sort of usable 
bioorganic material in the amphorae that used to hold garum, the Roman fish ketchup, you know. And uh, they were able to deconstruct it, and all of these recipes that they thought were actually what was used might be wrong. And so there's this authority in Spain that's now qualifying it, and they're, they're producing what they say is the closest thing to this Roman ketchup. And you think to yourself, wow, here's something that for hundreds and hundreds of years was ubiquitous in basically the known world, right? I mean, imagine if we lost, imagine losing the recipe for ketchup, you know what I mean? And here we are reconstructing it from bio, uh, what do you say, bioarchaeological findings. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. No, especially at Pompeii and the sites around it and around Naples. And this is one of the reasons why I think Naples is continuing to grow as a, an important tourist destination. And you know, like the New York Times and CNN Travel both put it on their must-see list for 2022. There's incredibly fascinating, amazing, and active archaeology going on because science is all a part of it now. So there's all sorts of, there's testing of the bones to understand the diets of the Romans. There's, you know, testing all sorts of organic compounds um, in, you know, like the toilets of the Romans. It sounds disgusting, but like there's residue, there's films, there's organic matter that really unlocks the past. And then you add in all different sort of uh, technologies for, you know, x-raying, for example, like the Villa of the Papyrus at Herculaneum, which has been recreated into the, the Getty Villa in Malibu. It's the only surviving classical library. There's all these stories about like the library of Alexandria, but none of them have ever been discovered except for one at Herculaneum. And there, because of new imaging technologies, we're finally being able to read the scrolls and we're seeing that this was a library of the Epicurean school. And so the attitude of Southern Italy, which I think still pervades today, this sort of, you know, live free from fear, enjoy today, the volcano could blow up, but you're gonna eat well and drink well. <laughs> It's got ancient foundations because this was one of the major centers for Epicurean thought, which was about living for today and being free from anxiety. And, you know, now Stanley Tucci told everyone to go there. So that's <laughs> true. <laughs> that helps. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the offerings that you have here, and uh, one of them is an art and architecture Southern Italy class that's coming up uh, in a couple of weeks from, from where we are today on January 28th, and I'm looking at the image that you guys have on the Context Learning website, and it's all of these white marble statues. It's obviously, for those of us in the know, in the gardens of the palace at Caserta, these beautiful Romanesque statues. And you think about the history of statuary, and we have this vision of Rome and Greece you know, carved out of marble, everything carved out of marble. But in reality, it would have all been painted just like these frescoed, uh, interiors that we see that we find in places like Pompeii and Herculaneum, you know, we're finding now through the technology when they scan these statues, we think of them as stark and white, but they would have at one point been polychrome with all kinds of vibrant colors and patterns. And as they were being found before the technology was realized, many times the paint might still be on there and they were washing it off, you know, washing away the images. It's just, we, we don't know what we don't know until we know it, I guess. The Victorians were famous for that. I just saw those white marbles they wanted them to look pristine and they scrubbed all the original paint off of them because they were bright i mean they had eyeballs red hair crazy patterns on their clothes i mean you look at some of those i mean there's been lots of again like sort of like imaging technology to recapture um what these would have looked like i mean look at missoni or dolce and gabbana and you're like man you see where it comes from yeah <laughs> it's, in, it's in the water yeah yeah it is in the water i think the most shocking thing 
I ever came across in Naples. And I think the name of the church is San Lorenzo Maggiore. It's by San Gregorio Armeno. Maybe that area, like Tecumani around there. It is a Gothic, a real Gothic. Like you could take that church and stick it in France mm-hmm. and you would never question. And it never, ever occurred to me that the Gothic world included Naples. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just, I guess because like, you know, the Renaissance and the Rococo and the Baroque kind of steamrolled over Naples and churches were redecorated. It did, but just as they did in Rome, a lot of those medieval churches with Gothic architecture during the Counter-Reformation, I say they baroqued over them. So they, you know, put a flat ceiling with painting, but underneath it are the arches. The Cathedral of San Gennaro in Naples, for example, was a Gothic cathedral. And if you go into some of the side aisles, there are places where they removed the Baroque ceiling and you can see those pointed arches and it looks like a cathedral in France. So many of even the most famous Baroque churches in Naples are originally medieval. It's amazing how much history is there to be uncovered, you know, and, and it tells such a different story. And I was in, um, I think it's the Church of St. Nicholas in Bari, uh, which is what, a basilica church, isn't it? Is it a basilica, Pat, when we went down there? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost, it's more important if you take Puglia out of the out of the mix, and you take Bari out of the mix, it's a much more important pilgrimage site for the Eastern Orthodox than it is for Catholics. You know, Russia and when we did the pilgrimage, yeah, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, it was like Greeks and yeah, I couldn't believe how many people were there. And that it was a very cold December sixth morning, as I, I'm sure you recall. But I, I guess it was damaged. I want to say in the Second World War. I don't really remember, but. When they restored it, they they restored it to, I guess, its very stark Gothic appearance. And so, like, so much of this history had not been revealed for centuries. And here was this place that, you know, like you say, Pat, felt like you could have walked into it in France or even England. You know, it was just so different. But Yeah, absolutely. I left England out of that. Yeah, I I was just stunned with that. Well, Santa Chiara is the same. Yeah. Santa Chiara is a Gothic church. Yeah. Exactly. Santa Chiara was bombed. Yeah. Well, Santa Chiara was on the hit list to be destroyed by the Germans. And the order that came, they say, directly from Hitler was to completely destroy Naples, to leave nothing behind. Um, It was during the four days of Naples when the Neapolitans themselves, without any organization, rose up and freed the city. That's the only reason that anything in Naples survives. I mean, it's it's as close to a miracle as, as anything I could imagine. Um, but Santa Chiara was always a very, very important church in Naples from the Middle Ages. So that had a target on it. Wasn't Naples the first and maybe the only, I could be getting this wrong, city during the Second World War to rise up and free itself from German occupation? It's the only city that a municipality in Italy where they chased, actually chased out the Germans, right? It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Florence was not freed until almost a year later. Germans left Naples in 1943, and I don't think that... Um, yeah, Florence was free until September, uh, late August of 1944. I mean, you know, the damage done in that war, and you know, the Abbey at Monte Cassino through American and Allied forces, right? The Germans are holed up, and the destruction that that and the loss in southern Italy. It's amazing to think of what we have lost uh, in, in the not so distant past. You mentioned Danielle uh, in our conversation offline beforehand that you have been doing these things that they just started, right? These, these context learning seminars, you just started doing them. The first one was not that long ago. Um, no, I've actually been doing them since the beginning of the pandemic, but oh. sporadically here and there. And then, um, you know, they scheduled them every once in a while. And, you know, 
Omicron descends and this, book, this program becomes more popular. And so they wound up scheduling me to do a talk every Friday night for two months straight. This Friday is the third in the series that I'm doing. And what's the reaction been like? Um, it's interesting to see the comments afterwards because, you know, a lot of people keep their, their screens dark, their live presentations, and then they're recorded and, and sent out to everybody who purchased a ticket later on. So when I get the feedback form, it's really interesting to see people saying, almost always, I'm so surprised, I had no idea any of this was here. And then people asking for future talks that will have travel recommendations because now they want to go there and they want to know where to eat and drink and stay. And have you found, if you know this, maybe, I don't even know if it's black screens you're, you're looking at, have you heard from anybody qualitatively, is there an Italian-American component of this audience or do you not know that? No, there, there are, and I would say definitely the people that ask questions on Zoom, on the live calls are very frequently Italian-American and they are really in the moment of discovery of like, wow, I had no idea. And then they'll say, you know, as every, in every Italian-American forum, you see the same thing. Somebody pops up and says, my grandmother is from, and then names some obscure hill town. <laughs> Do you know anything about that? <laughs> of course. You have to see Pat to know anything about those obscure hill towns. Yeah. I, think only, I think only Pat can answer those. Overall, I think people are just so surprised that this history exists and that they've never encountered it anywhere. Yeah, it's really true, especially in an, in an English language form. You know what I mean? It, yeah. Not terribly well covered, even in Italian, but it's much, much worse uh, in terms of access in English. And, you know, it's really same thing that drives us doing the show here, right? I mean, that's the same drive for us is to sort of bring what we've been able to gather over the years to a, a wider audience. I was thinking about that as we were doing show prep. Pat and Roe, I'm looking at this context learning, and, you know, as Danielle was saying, they're interested in Italy and in English language availability and in the Eastern Standard Time. If you guys were tasked with doing an online seminar on a piece of sort of you know, history, travel, culture, what would you like to teach? Me? Yeah, both of you. Yeah. That's what this is. I thought that was the podcast. <laughs> Well, okay, so then if you had to pick one episode to go to a new audience and introduce to a new audience that doesn't know you. I'm not that coherent. I am the last person in the world you should ever ask this question to. What would your favorite topic be? It changes with the minute. <laughs> I'm so over the place. Who knows? I might start with Gothic and then start talking about, I don't know, a babarum recipe. Who would know where it would go? I would want to teach about the food of my nonna's era. Wow. You know, the way, like, uh, I would want to probably create, like, a, an immersive experience. So, like, in my, you know, dream, what, whatever, this is a fantasy, this isn't real. Um, you know how, like, you can go to Matera and visit, like, the rock houses and stuff? Yeah. And walk through it. And so I'd want to, like, set up, like, the old uh, house that my nonna lived in with her seven siblings and stuff and take you through, like, a day in the life. Wow. Of how she had to, like, cook for seven children every day. And like her, her mother and and her and probably her like worthless uncles and stuff, and like you know, take you through the day of like buying food for that and like what was available and what like the menu looked like, and then having to like sit at this big table and stuff. I don't know. I think it'd be popular. Do you have certain recipes that you've learned from Nona Romana that are like time periody recipes? Yeah. What are they? My um, one uncle, he was the baby. He was the last of seven, and um, he he barely knew his his he was like barely a year old when his father died so um he would only eat certain things for certain periods in his life so when he was little he would like only want to eat uh formagino ferrero which was like basically like a solid nutella 
Um, and then for lunch and stuff, he was kind of a bastard and he would only eat risa patate. Rice and potatoes. Baked rice and potatoes with tomato sauce. And she had to make that almost every day for him. Wow. And make other stuff for the other kids. You do think about like even like recipes and stuff that if, if things weren't written down, it's so easy to forget. My grandmother talks about uh, chicken that she calls ingrassata that my great-grandmother used to make from Sicily. It's a potted chicken. It's a agrodolce, but we have no family recipe, and, and we kind of have attempted to remake it from my grandmother's recollection. And uh, it's really tough. It's really tough to do. So to, to me, you know, the availability of certain ingredients, what they got, where they got them, what was available in the economy, what was available when they came here, I do find that stuff really interesting, the history of, of these recipes. My nonna also... Her brother Vito was a uh, was quite a hunter, and uh, he used to hunt. He used to bring home a lot of sparrows. I've heard of that actually. Yeah, and she would have to cook them for for everyone. Or um, or they had like a small like cage of birds and stuff, and she actually had to. Uh, I don't know if they were sparrows or a different kind of like small bird, and it was like her job to like go in there and like kill them and cook them. And I was like, oh my god. And she's like, I would have to, I would just like slam them on the floor and they would die. And I'm like, <laughs> damn, like, that is like the episode of cooking with no, no, no one wants to see. <laughs> no, no, not, not, not nowadays. You're not doing, Peter would be all over. You'd be no more cooking with no one after that. Yeah. I just imagine her like in this, in like our, the little alley by, by her house, like, you know, killing these birds. And I'm just like, uh, I feel so bad. <laughs> I, I've he- heard stories of my great grandmother. Who did, who, she died in her 90s. I was, I think, 20 maybe, um, catching songbirds and putting them in like a, gra- a sauce or gravy. My mom recalls being really young and my great-grandmother serving what my mom thinks was chicken blood that was then like whipped into like a breadcrumb fritter almost and uh, obviously chicken feet, but we don't know how she made the chicken feet. Like, you know, those kind of things are lost. And not that everybody's dying to have chicken blood feet and a sparrow ragu, but, you know, it, it'd be good to know. I think if you go back to the towns of origin, someone's going to know. If you went back there, someone's going to say, oh, I know how to make that. I was going to say in Guardia, there's actually a cookbook that they released that actually describes all of the different ways of like taking the blood out of the pig, taking care of the songbirds, all that stuff. So there's actually a cookbook. I have it in the house. I'll show it to you the next time you visit me in Scranton. And it tells you how to do all that stuff with illustrations that the local school children actually did because they are used to this. Do you see this? It always goes back to food. Yeah, it yeah. does. We started out with a medieval cathedral <laughs> in Naples. The medieval, Danielle's like, oh, we just blocked her out. And now we're talking yeah. about lunch. I'm limited over here. I can't teach about, like, art and unicorn tapestries. You no, know, it's time. We, all, we all jumped in. Like, Norwegians, if they had a if they had this, they would never go back to a looked fish recipe in the middle, in the middle of a discussion on medieval art. The best <laughs> of my knowledge. True. That's but somehow we start with medieval, medieval art, and then just all of a sudden we're talking about frying birds and gravy. It's <laughs> makes us us. But that's who we are. Hey, but, you know, pastries really all come from convents. True. We're the nuns that were baking pastries. Cannoli were invented in a convent. Sfogatelle were invented in, we know the exact convent where they came from. It's on the Amal. Is that true? Yes. Was yes. that Santa Rosa? Did it really come from Santa Rosa? Santa, yeah. It's now a... It's a five-star hotel now. It's actually an American who bought it. It's like 
$1,200 a night or something. But that is the monastery where a nun first baked a sfogliatella and then supposedly her nephew in Naples gets a hold of the recipe and turns it into uh, a seashell, inverts it. First, it was meant to look like the hood of a monk when it's like hanging down off of his head. And then supposedly her nephew gets it inverts it into a seashell shape, because this is a popular motif in Rococo architecture, which is popular in Naples at the time, and starts selling it. And this is how it becomes the signature pastry of Naples. Of course, this is all like myth, <laughs> but- Again, well, how do we go from Gothic art to Spiedel's? This is why, how could I do a class, John? <laughs> It'd be all over the place. You are a college professor, right? I mean, you do teach a class every week. Yeah, but I'm all, but I'm, I am all over the place anyway. But I mean, like, I don't, if you That's ask true. me to, if you just said, we're going to do, talk about Italy, then we're fine. Because then I could bounce around like a ping pong. The kids, not ping pong. What was, it? What was the game we used to have? Pinball? Pinball. Thank you. Pinball. I got <laughs> pinball. Bing, 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 bing. Yeah. That is, you are an intellectual pinball. Wow. Stephanie can yeah. make her emblem for any PA. Oh, here we go. And I'll have a pinball machine. Bing, 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 bing. Speaking of Stephanie, what would you like to teach? What would I like to teach? I would like to teach about Irpinia. Oh, really? Okay. I was going to say the Italians of Northeastern Pennsylvania. But I already did that. is a close second. <laughs> so, Irpinia. I would love to talk about Irpinia. I feel that it's an underrepresented section in Southern Italy. And I get a lot of emails from people who have read my books where they say to me like, oh, yeah, my family's from Irpinia. And instead, they could be from the Cilento or they could be from right outside of Naples. Like they just don't have an idea of what Irpinia is or where some of the towns are. And so many Italian-Americans claim ancestry from the area. I would just love to teach them a little bit more about the area, what it stands for, what goes on there. Even just a whole class on the earthquake, I would love to teach. Just like for context for the audience that might not know, geographically, Irpinia is the province of Evelino. Mm-hmm. In Campania, yeah. I love it. I think it's just at the Catskills. Danielle, you've been there. You have expertise in the area. Oh, yeah. Do you think I'm right? To, it's like the Catskills. Yeah, I, I would say, but much the elevation is much higher than the Catskills. So it, and it's kind of, I don't know, the weather is kind of cloudy and moody. and well. It's Northeast PA. It's the Northeast PA of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get that in there. She couldn't wait. And the wine and salami is much better in Irpinia than in the Catskills. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I had an Italian government official say to me one time that Campania is a train wreck, but that Irpinia is very well managed. Yeah, it's true. That of all Campania, Irpinia was the least corrupt and things got done. And it was kind of, you know, it's culturally definitely Campania, but um, there was more of um, good politicians and a respect for authority. So the guys who were good politicians were able to get things done because people kind of followed the leader. But Danielle, let me ask you something. So people who take this class, what, what should they expect? What are they going to do and what are they going to get out of it? So they are about one and a half hour presentations. Um, the, the first hour is me, you know, mostly lecturing with PowerPoint. And I always like to read books with, with lots of pictures. So I include a ton of slides and I was spent two months in Italy this summer, so I did a bunch of new research and at least 70 photographs in each one of my presentations. Um, and then I usually leave a half an hour for questions and conversation. And sometimes I just talk too much and run over. But I really try to give people, you know, a, an overview of whatever the topic is I'm talking about, because people are coming from all different um, levels of interest and exposure. And then I 
get more specific. And I really try to focus in on stories and find people in history that people can attach to so that they feel that they've got some connection to the place through a person, um, sometimes through a food <laughs> that often helps. I talk about spoliatella quite a bit in almost every class that I give. Somehow I find a way to weave them in there. And really, I like to think of them as conversations more than anything. Sometimes they wind up being lectures if people are very quiet, but I really always tell people, unmute yourselves, jump in, interrupt me. I'm very comfortable with that. Can I, can, can I jump in a second? <laughs> I, was gonna, I was about to say you should be on this show more often. Go ahead, Pat. People open up your wallets. Now, some people you have hard economic times, we're in a crazy time. But for those of you who have your confirmation money wrapped up in a rubber band underneath your mattress, take the class, learn, invite family members. When you have boring, dull conversations with the family, you can bring up the stuff you're going to Danielle's class. When people start to talk politics and everybody gets angry, you can bring up Danielle's class. So open up the wallet. And go to Danielle Quiz, and I'm done. Thank you, Pat. And you know, everybody now, I mean, there's kind of like a, a weird place that's in between academia and pop culture. And that's kind of the place that I occupy. And a lot of people in academia will turn down their nose. It's sort of this more popular history, but you know, I think it's really important to do popular history and to get it out there in the mainstream. And I'm always very responsible about my sources and looking at primary sources as much as I can. But it's important to you know, patronize people that are writing books that are meant for regular everyday people, not just for academics and whatever other material they're putting out there in the world, because there's not necessarily a clean place for us to do this kind of work and, you know, earn a living at the same time. And, you know, Danielle, to your point, I've learned on this platform, it's what I love, what we do so much, that there really is a look down your nose from academia a lot of times. But the bottom line is, first of all, you've got, you know, more degrees and you've got, uh, decades of experience at major institutions, you know what you're talking about. I think in a certain sense, academia is starting to feel a little bit of like the, the dog catching up and nipping at its heels because the beauty of this technology is, as Pat always says, this podcast is his biggest classroom ever, right? You know, you, you know you're not paying for the credit. So this is, forget necessarily an alternative, it's a revolution in how people are taught because somebody said to me when we talk about the show, people don't necessarily like feeling like they're being taught they love to learn and so here you're offering the opportunity to learn in a venue that is accessible that you don't need a glossary necessarily to follow and you're not getting in the minutia of all of this stuff you know we say it on the show all the time a lot of italian american academics complain about a lack of support in the community but then they're going out and writing you know analyzing gramsci's shoe size in the period when he was in prison it's like that's not what the community wants. The community wants stuff that's accessible and has vitality to it. And so, yeah, we you know, can interpret is... in between because like that kind of research is, is key and we need that. Yeah. And, you know, the, and we need people to just do that really boring, persnickety work. Yes. Like, that's God true. bless us people. But we also need somebody else to interpret it in between and to be able to like understand how that information came together to be able to talk about, you know, what's apocryphal, the story about the spoliatella and say, well, this is myth, but maybe it's got some foundation that the place of interpretation is really important. And yeah, a, a podcast, a video series, whatever it is, really is the opportunity to do it. I do think Pat's absolutely right. This is a great gift. This is a great way to integrate your family. And, you know, it's something for the person who has everything. Danielle, you've got uh, the schedule up, but you said you came up with two classes just today that I guess aren't announced. Can you tell us what they are? 
put another Elena Ferrante's Naples on the calendar. That's going to be in March and another Matera class. So it's the same classes. They're just going to be available again for people to join in on the live calls. And then also, this is aside from context, but um, with a member of the new neighborhood, Diana Giovinazzo, we're going to be doing a class on February 16th about Maria Carolina, the Queen of Naples. Um, Diana just published a book, a, a historical fiction novel about her. And so we'll be doing sort of a back and forth talking about the real history and then uh, her journey of writing the fiction story of her life. That's so exciting. Yeah. She is the bomb. We met in the new neighborhood. Yeah. She is on the pod. She's fantastic. Fantastic person. You guys got to have her on the podcast. She's great. To meet in the new neighborhood. What a, that's, that's a full circle. We're really doing what we said we'd do for you guys to interact in the new neighborhood and all our other members out there. That's awesome. That's really wonderful. Yeah, we've collaborated a few times now, so it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to have met that way and become friends. You know, somebody was, I was reading an article yesterday that was saying Italy is, you know, as one might expect, well below where other nations are in terms of public monuments and things named and, you know, statues and whatnot of, for women. And uh, they're creating some panel to address it. And I thought to myself, you know, in Naples, what is now Piazza Dante, this beautiful piazza, really, this semicircular piazza, was Largo Carolina, named after Queen Maria Carolina until the Risorgimento. And they brought Dante down and sort of, you know, plopped him in every plinth that they could find and, and named everything after him and Garibaldi. But wouldn't that be nice to turn that back? She was a fascinating character, really, a woman that gets very little historical um, uh, coverage doesn't really get much play, if you will. But uh, yeah, that's really exciting. That's really going to be uh, it's going to be really nice to to see. How hopefully, I can make that one. And I think I'm going to jump in on I think one of the Matera lectures as well. So I'm I look forward to getting to see you in action. Awesome! Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Give our regards to your husband. We all love your husband. He's the best. Yes, oh, another another former. Oh, Tom, I said happy birthday. <laughs> He's a great Tom, guy. Tom, I said happy birthday too. Needless to say, this is going to be. Well worth your time. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to have fun. And you're going to be supporting a member of our new neighborhood and our tribe who is doing a lot to share history that most people uh, probably haven't heard of. So this is going to be a great opportunity to give yourself a little lesson and uh, dig in deep and then even ask Danielle some questions afterwards, which is awesome. So make your way over to contextlearning.com and take one of Danielle's classes. Make sure to go off of mute. Make sure to ask a question and make sure to tell her that you are listening from the Italian American podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italiano 